This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 150, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan Garrett, founder and CEO at Fairwill, who get 4.9 stars from over 3,000 reviews on Trustpilot to talk about how tech slash fintech is revolutionising the, um, uh, the uh, uh, game over industry, which is summarised by a well-known sci-fi. They're all dead, Dave. Henry VIII is dead. Gladstone is dead. Kachansky is dead. Anyway, before you know it all, all of us will be dead, Dave. 50 points for any listeners that get the reference to that, and minus 50 points for anyone that know the name of the specific Red Dwarf episode, as that's far too nerdy. If you are like me, then all too often, off the bottom of your to-do list is doing a proper will. Joking apart, it's serious stuff, guys. Cock it up, and Boris will have even more to spend on vanity bridges and vanity railways that don't go to Birmingham, nor go to central London, nor indeed match up with the high-speed links of the continent. I recall the saying that a drowning man doesn't need encouragement, he needs a life belt. Well, in the same way, our nearest and dearest all need us to get our shit together. In the fintech age, farewell are making this super easy, so you and I have no excuse. Do you want to piss away your post-tax earnings by giving the state another bite? Do you really want those you love torn in different directions and fighting? Of course you don't, me neither. Well, we now have a 21st century option to avoid all of that in the remote chance that you croak tomorrow, or the day after, or the 100% chance that you're probably gone within a century. Besides, as Dan explains, from an FS point of view, croaking is the biggest financial transaction of your life. You may be hanging out with the angels or devils thereafter, but your loved ones won't. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Dan. Thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to be here, thanks. Yes, and here is certainly quite a long way away. I sat on the upstairs of a bus for the first time in 40 years, actually. This uh, Haggerston, or Haggerston, or however you pronounce it. It's probably 10 minutes away from Old Street, but occasionally we do get people complaining, saying I've never heard of Haggerston before. This is how you conned me into coming here. I remember you telling me it's 10 minutes away from Old Street, which implies, in the general usage of the English language, 10 minutes walk rather than 10 minutes by motorbike. But I got a bus from London Bridge, although talking about the Netherlands, you're actually much nearer to the centre of London than the HS2 stop is going to be. Oh, I feel like this is a real bugbear for you. I'm, quite, I'm a bit of an HS2 fan. What? I am, yeah. And I'm a fan of the, of the fancy bridge as well. Oh my God. I know. Why? I think there's, there's something romantic about investing in, in these kind of big projects. I'm more of a fan of the Garden Bridge than, than HS2 because it doesn't sound like it's going to be that much faster. It's not going to be that much faster. And it's going to be a pile of hassles. So, at the moment, you go to Euston. Euston goes into New Street, the centre of Birmingham, which I know well, as I grew up there. HS2 will go... Yesterday they were saying three to five years, and now it's five to seven, so you can assume it's a decade or two, to Old Oak Common or somewhere like that, which is nowhere near the centre of London. It will also not go into Birmingham. It will stop somewhere east of Birmingham. So, actually, the fact that the train goes, wee, which makes the politicians happy for the vanity projects, is by the by, because I think the, over, the overall commuting hustle is far higher, 
and I bet it will take longer. For 100 billion. And, and My girlfriend's from Earlswood, which is in East Birmingham. So oh, well, there we I'm go. Not so, complaining. Yeah. So, so, so she's okay, and you'll be all right, but I, we don't know how much it's it going. It does seem so mismanaged. You know, if you watch the, if you watch the, you know, that hospital getting built in seven days in Wuhan, and for a while I lived in Japan, and you watch the different attitude to construction, and it does leave you feeling rather hopeless about any of these big projects in the UK, which is kind of sad. We used to be the best at that. Yes, we used to be the best at that. We're, we're not. I mean, I was wondering this morning, and I never got around to looking it up, how long Crossrail has been going on. 5,000 years, I think. Yes, something like 5,000 years. It is um, very lamentable. And also, just in terms of the money, I mean, the, the romance thing, sure. But apart from the destruction of the environment, which generally uh, green people like Boris are in favour of the environment, the amount of money is staggering. So there was a huge kerfuffle of having to pay the EU 70 billion or whatever, un understandably, but we have been there for decades. Whereas this is more than that for a line that goes 100 miles. I think I saw yesterday that the Channel Tunnel, which involved a hell of a lot of digging and wasn't at all easy, cost 12 billion in modern money. Mm. It's absolutely phenomenal and the government messes up any project. Anyway, this isn't the government construction podcast. This is the FinTech podcast and uh, the benefit of you being I measured it one and a half miles north of <laughs> Liverpool Street Station um, uh, which is uh, uh, quite, 10 minutes is quite a fast walking pace to do that <laughs> um, quite a fast sprint actually uh, is you've got nice spacious offices here so avoiding all the things about uh, plenty of fintech businesses have died over the past uh, five or six years uh, but you're in the business of dying what was your career journey that brought you to the brought you to the death game yeah, not the most linear career ever. I left school and went into manufacturing briefly. Oh, the real world? Yeah, the real world. You and Nigel Verdon? Very, yeah, totally. It was, it was very brief. I used to love this TV programme called How It's Made. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's kind of like inside factories. Um, so I did a brief stint in factories, decided I was going to go to university and went to study maths and engineering. Always loved how things were built. And I think I was, I was probably young enough that my take on how to change the world and build amazing cool things that went all over the place was a physical one rather than app-based or digital. I wasn't, wasn't kind of really into computers when I was younger or anything like that. So, so studied engineering, I absolutely loved it, but it, it's not really very creative. It's the, you know, how do you build a steam engine from first principles? So left university and went into design. I worked for McLaren briefly, designing cars. So design is quite a 90-degree turn from doing sums and sort of saying, well, the bridge needs this much steel, but we'll double it to be on the safe side. I think there's so much in common. There's so, like, science gets such a bad rap and maths gets such a bad rap when you're at school for being uncreative, but there's so much creativity in both of them. It's problem-solving and it's creative, and I don't think they're actually worlds apart. And that used to, you know, going back to... Britain being a sort of industrial and manufacturing and, and infrastructure champion of the past. Which now Boris right. seems, to me, seems to equate with something we should apologise for and therefore reduce ourselves to the Stone Age before everyone else does. But, but completely, and, and that used to be the, the mixture of, of design and engineering. So worked in design and actually then got a, kind of a scholarship to go to the Royal College of Art from something called the Royal Commission of 1851. And the great exhibition of... 1851 was precisely that it brought together art and science in this kind of like huge pavilion so anyway they, they now sponsor people who are going from the sciences into the arts i did a two-year master's degree at the royal college of art that was split between tokyo and new york and london and it was the first year of the course it brought together 12 people from a huge variety of 
backgrounds. And our remit was come up with products or services that had global applicability. So like really, really broad. It was an incredible course, amazing to do that traveling. While I was based in Tokyo, we were in a geriatric home. So we had this kind of government funded research project where we had a team of design researchers, ethnographers, and the one thing we were supposed to do was, was figure out what products we could build that would help these people who were kind of realistically 80, 90, 100 plus. At the end of the six months, I felt like we really failed in our job as designers in that we didn't get to the heart of the problem that everyone was struggling with. We focused on the superficiality of aging. It was like the getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs rather than the fact that people don't have their friends and family around. I was about to say, presumably most old folks don't really want technologies or, or stuff. They've had lots of stuff in their life. They just want to see their friends and family. Exactly. They want, their friend, they want to see their friends and family. And they, they know that they're not going to be around, be, be around for that much longer. So I, I really feel like we didn't, didn't do what we went there for because we didn't even touch on death. And when I came back to the UK, I decided to spend a couple, couple of months in the death industry. I organised 15 funerals, got qualification in will writing, started filing probate applications, which is a kind of legal financial stuff you do after someone dies, just to get a grounding in the industry. And I was really struck by the fact that it's the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched by technology. There's nothing like it. In OEDC countries, it's kind of $80 billion industry and 2% of it is online. And it's not because it's macroeconomically impossible and it's not because it's technologically unfeasible. It's because there is this profound human aversion to talking about and dealing with death. And that, to me, is an amazing design challenge. Right. OK, so you say it's non-linear, but that appears to make sort of a hell of a lot of logical sense. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Rather than sort of one day a tornado came in Kansas and picked you up and spun you around and, <laughs> and dropped your house somewhere else. Indeed. And it is often the way that if you can make... I mean, putting the design to one side, because I don't have any artistic skills myself, but if you can make something simpler and more straightforward and easier to do in front of you, then often people will do it. And a nightmare example, I think I may mention the podcast, is, is last year I was looking at my old pension from Climewalt's side, and it's a defined benefit scheme, and transferring that into a bunch of investments and stuff that actually I could leave to the kids in that, rather than it just disappearing mm. into thin air. And my God, does the government make that nightmare. I mean, utter, utter nightmare. I mean, I've got 35 years in the city. I, by now, I know enough about sums and, and mm. money and all that kind of stuff. But it's absolutely impossible. Not only is it absolutely impossible, you have to sign up with the likes of a Fidelity pay them thousands of pounds to patronise you, and the FCA has said that their, their, their default position must be that you shouldn't change. So you spend thousands of pounds, you know, just cutting through um, uh, someone to be able to get to your uh, money. They make it incredibly difficult, presumably, to stop people transferring. So the ease with which something can be done is a real factor as well. I mean, you're quite right, of course, that um, most people want to live a sort of a long life. Uh, equally, we're all quite right that lives don't go on forever. So Presumably just the sort of how straightforward it's made and how, how easy it is to keep track of it. I think one, one side of it is definitely the quality of the user experience and, and how simple it is to go through, particularly the will writing side of our business. So, so we, we have three things that we do. We help people write wills. We help deal with probate after people die. And we also run a nationwide cremation and, business. And probate for those people abroad who don't use funny thousands of years old terms. A will is, say, just keep it simple, a will says... If I get run over by a bus today, I'll leave it all to Battersea Dogs Home. Probate is 
correct me if I'm wrong, is the legal process that follows me being run over by the bus and the financial transactions being made. That's basically right. And presumably, you know, my family saying he was insane, he didn't even like dogs. You know, this must be, must be the wrong will or something so like step, one, one step to it is getting a grant of probate, which is you have to fill out a bunch of forms, send them to the government, and then you get what's called a grant of probate. That allows you to close down bank accounts, sell properties. And the second part of it is the estate administration. So that would be the sort of divvying up of your assets to Battersea Cats and Dogs Home. To the point you were talking about before, definitely one bit of it is making the actual product easy to use if it's online. But there's a step that comes before that, which is, to be honest, the biggest challenge for us in growing our business and in tackling the market situation, which is the brand of dealing with death. You know, if you say to someone, you need to make your will, you need to deal with probate or organise a cremation, what pops into your head is this kind of grey, drab Victoriana. And really what the challenge is for a company like ours is to change that picture, to make it feel warm and friendly and accessible and like you can do it yourself and it's not going to cost a fortune. So, so before you even hit the website or before you even call us to deal with the cremation, you need to start to get people thinking differently about it. And that, can, that really is a design challenge, it's a brand challenge. It's also presumably a geography challenge saying that you'd worked in various places and it, it would seem to me that whilst you've set up somewhat far north of London, if you set up even further west of London, in Ireland, I would suspect that culturally there's a different attitude because they have a wake and you'd have a wake product out there and I'd leave a sort of thousand pounds so my relatives get completely smashed and talk about what a jerk I was and all that kind of stuff and it's a more as far as I understand from Irish terms it's a much more positive thing. I mean yeah there's there's huge cultural variance particularly in how people approach the funeral side of things. I mean what you're seeing in the UK at the moment is that about 10% of the population what wants what would be considered as a traditional funeral but 80% of the population has a traditional funeral. So our reluctance to actually engage with it before we die and make our funeral wishes clear, and then, you know, if anyone who's listening has ever been through the process and you lose an uncle or a parent or a partner, you're kind of on autopilot. You go down the local high street and into the funeral directory you've walked past a million times and come out having bought something that's off the shelf, very, very expensive, pretty traditional and not personal. And that fork in the road, I think, highlights the amount of cultural and social and, and societal baggage that we bring to the table. That's like, you know, for some reason we don't engage with it. We switch off. We're hardwired not to think about death. And as a result, you end up having funerals that don't match the person who's died and their family who's left behind. That's a real missed opportunity. Like when, you, when the type of funerals that we do is called a direct cremation, what we do someone's died, they call us, we pick up the body, do the cremation and hand deliver back the ashes. And no one is an unattended cremation. Then it's totally on the family to do whatever they want, whether it's drinking champagne on the South Downs or having a party on a local beach or going to their favourite restaurant or a rugby club that they always loved. It's kind of detaching it from the local authority crematoria or a church that for most people no longer represents what they really want. Yes, and there's a whole value chain there but just starting at the sort of the wills end it's, it's, it's incredibly important and just thinking off the top of my head most people probably meet this as they go through life in terms of sorting out sort of old or age, aged relatives of theirs so my grandfather passed away I don't know about 10 or 20 years ago or something my mother was his only daughter and she was very distressed about it so I sorted it out and I'm eternally grateful to him that he had a little book by his bed 
with the information and the numbers to call and all that kind of stuff, because it was in York. So I was mm. doing things like identifying the body and all that kind of stuff. So coming back to your people, then just do the knee-jerk whatever, it's sort of a distressing period. But because it got a book, there was a number of in this solicitor. So then I've got a number of solicitors, and i just deal with this solicitor who, who he'd wanted. You know, there's what he wanted for the funeral. that He actually did uh, what, you know, say he wanted a, all the old local old biddies, because they're mostly biddies by the time they're getting old, because all us poor men are uh, so downtrodden, they, we die sooner. And so it was all lined out, and it made it so much easier. Bridget's parents both passed away within a few months, about a decade or so ago. And I think to finally sort out all this legal, complicated stuff you're talking about, it was an 18-month job. Yeah. And emptying their house and, and all that kind of thing. So, yes, apart from stopping Boris blowing your money on vanity projects, it's actually the best thing you can do for your relatives, which is just to sort of leave it sort of clear so they can Tasty. actually execute it straightforwardly. And I think the other thing, of course, in the digital age is that, I mean, I better not get run over by a bus today because my papers in my study were a complete bloody mess. You'd yeah. never find anything. Let alone these days, I've got passwords on everything on the phone and let's just say the Monzo account, my Revolut account. I guess if I go up in a fireball and my Monzo card and, and, and whatever card gets melted, no one will ever find out I have those accounts. You know, how do you access all this stuff? So mm. technology is making it much harder than in my parents' era when everything came through the post. So yep. when they get run over by a bus, you've got a bunch of, oh, they had a Lloyd's account. Oh, they had a Barclays account. At least you've got somewhere to start. These days, the digital world makes it, although it obviously helps you guys make it easier, but it does create lots of technical problems, which I've never heard anybody refer to. It's so true. I mean, that is still the first port of call when we're dealing with someone. If, if they've called our probate line and they want some help to deal with the estate of someone who's died, one of the first steps is genuinely going through paperwork. So asking them to figure out where they had accounts, and it's genuinely a lot harder when it's done digitally. You know, I think there's an extent to which companies can kind of play catch up here, and there are some services that are starting to emerge where you can, you know, just find out in one go where all of someone's accounts are. But the explosion in fintech means that every day there's another 10 places you could put your money, whether it's a smart investing platform or it's a pension or it's something else. And I think until it becomes a necessary part of running any financial company that there is this communication with like a death network, there's a huge risk of lost assets. In the UK, there's, there's something like 50, course, there's 15 billion pounds of lost assets. I was about to say, which of course, historically, the banks yeah, haven't exactly been in a hurry totally. to encourage that because they let get left with this pot of money which eventually... So there have been fines levied on some of the big retail banks because they haven't been proactive enough to help get money back to kind of families of deceased account holders. Yes, and just in terms of innovating and finteching and all this kind of stuff, I'm just thinking of my grandfather's little notebook where he'd written things in. We can have too much of a legal mentality about things. You know, the will's a legal document and probate's a legal thing, mumble, mumble. But the legal aspects are just the basics. On top of that, in the context of wills and that, and in the context of you guys innovating, I see no reason, uh, we'll come on to how your product works, but you know, the Bridget uses some company, not yourselves, and you know, you're allowed so many updates a year and all this kind of stuff. There's no reason that in your form or whatever you have online, like the will, you know, Battersea Dogs Home Tick kind of stuff, that you couldn't have a, quote, non-legal bit at the bottom or an addendum saying, by the way, I've got an account with Monzo Revolut and... HSBC and, and so on. So, so, I mean, that's exactly um, what we do. Oh, well, there we go. Damn, I can't charge you for the idea now. 
It is a good it's, idea. So it's good. A we had it really. important. It's, it's a super so important. it's so important. Like the risk of lost assets is absolutely massive. Pensions as well. You know, totally. Fifteen years ago, I put hundred grand in a good year into some LNG fund and half forgot about it. Now it's only because they yeah. eat, they send me letters every year. Yeah. That I you know keep track of that. I recently found out I have forty seven pounds in a Santander account. Well, there you go. You're yeah. rich. You can buy us lunch. When we first launched the site and we we had that idea of right, let's get people to to in, inventorize their assets. We were thinking, oh god, this. It's going to be awful from a conversion perspective because someone's got to go through and they've got to think of everything. What we realised is that people actually really liked that side of it. They really liked the idea that finally they had everything written down because everyone does sort of wander around with this slight worry in the back of their mind of, God, if I, if I died, who would realise that I invested some money here or that I've got a random pension from somewhere that I used to work? So, so we actually found that people comprehensively list their assets. We can get into the kind of, you know, 20s or 30s in terms of where people have their money and that it's actually something that really drives net promoter score in the product, that drives people adopting it and recommending it, is that it can give you that peace of mind that you've actually got it written down somewhere. So that raises an interesting question in itself, which is, going back to your point, that sort of death isn't sort of the first thing on most people's mind on the average day, that... What you're doing there is actually creating a digital archive of people's stuff, which is useful in itself, even if you manage to live another 100 years. Because in 50 years' time, that Santander account, if you never got around to it, you might need 47 quid. You can find it and all these things. So the, the digital archive is something which, well, I don't know these kind of worlds, but I'm not sure it really exists, does it? It's a really interesting one. So, so lots of people in the past have tried to build companies around either a sort of like memory, like a digital memory box sort of thing or, a, or like an asset inventory. And they've normally had a really hard time of it. Because although the idea is instantaneously appealing... Quite a hassle to do. You're never going to get up in the morning and think, right, I'm going to inventorise my assets today, or at least maybe, <laughs> maybe one in a hundred people are. So I do think that it has to be couched in the context of, right, I know I need to, to make a will. The fascinating thing for us is there's such a high proportion of the population who agree with the statement, I know I need to make a will, but they just haven't got around to it. Like I said before, that comes back to the brand challenge of the objections to going to make a will are these Hollywood-esque pictures of what it's like to deal with a lawyer. You know, you're sat in front of someone in a top hat in front of a row of leather-bound books and it's costing you... 2,000 quid and it's taking forever. I think if we can dispel that, then you get people to farm, to, to kind of more proactively engage with it. So if someone checks farewell out, having heard you today, and wants to do, let's say they're 20-something, they want to do the simplest thing possible, you know, I'll leave it to Battersea Dog's home or I'll leave it yeah. to my mum and dad, something simple like that, and I've got a Monzo and I've got a Revolut account and I've got a Lloyds Bank account. Yeah. How much is that? As a, a, how much does that cost? And so, how long does it take them to do it? It costs £90 <clears throat> if you're making a single will. It costs... £140 if you're making a will for two people, two separate wills. And it takes, on average, about 12 and a half minutes. Then our, we have a team of will specialists who check the will, and that's normally done within 24 hours. So about 40% of people will get some specific comments back on their will saying, are you sure about this bit? Have you thought about that? So it isn't all algorithmic. It's really important for us that we actually have someone checking it on the, on the end of it because everyone's situation is so individual. I think one interesting thing is that we have very few customers who are 20-something and have a Monzo and a Revolut. Like, we're not at all saying we've solved the will problem for millennials because millennials don't have a will problem. They've got a debt problem. (laughs) Realistically, our customers have either kids or they've bought a house or they're getting married. 
So it kind of, we see very or few customers. Divorced. Or getting, yeah, definitely getting divorced, being separated. Not that bastard have my money. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely one of our, our main groupings of user statements. We see very few customers below the age of about 30. Right, anyway, the age thing doesn't matter. The, the principle does matter. You don't want Boris to have the money and you don't want all your rallies fighting over your Monzo account and all that kind of stuff. Right, okay, so we've spoken a little bit about the early value chain. You mentioned cremating people and collecting bodies. I wouldn't want to be in the body collecting department myself, but someone's got to do it. So in terms of the overall value chain, as you say, it's very old-fashioned, very undigitized, and the margins are huge. And they haven't, I mean, I read, I don't know, five years ago or something, some article about funeral parlours and and how they make an absolute bloody fortune out mm. of people. Okay. Oh, dear. Don't worry, I'll edit that, edit that bit out. Or if I'm feeling grumpy on the day, I'll leave it in. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's fascinating because so much of growth in the funeral industry has been this MBA case study, you know, private equity roll-up of funeral homes where you'll go to Solihull and you'll buy eight local funeral directors and then you'll jack up the prices. So... What you've seen over the last, realistically, 50 years is this private equity roll-up model, but then the number of funeral homes increasing around the UK. So you'll have a kind of family-owned funeral director. It's been going for 200 years. They get bought by a private equity company. They have a two- or three-year earn-out, and then they open one next door. So you've seen this explosion in the number of funeral directors. As a result, you get fewer and fewer funerals booked per high street funeral director, and to compensate, they up the prices. So, you know, by some measures, the average cost of a funeral has doubled in the last 10 years. Last year, in the midst of a competition of markets authority inquiry into overpricing in funerals, they went up 9%. So you've got this, it's the ultimate sort of entrenched incumbent business case where I think they're really going to suffer now from these sorts of like deflationary economics. Like we're able to come in at a price of £1,000 compared to an average price around the UK of £4,800, where they really just can't compete because their one acquisition channel is the high street. And that's less and less relevant for people in a modern age where you know, we're more secular, we want less traditional funerals. So I think some really interesting stuff is going to happen in the funeral industry in the next, in the next kind of three to five years. Right, OK, so you, you have this whole value chain. Anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope you all have extremely long lives, and I hope that some of you do check out Farewell or their competitors and actually make a will. As I say, I've been through the process, and it's a million times easier when the inevitable happens if you've done that. I'd also like to thank my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure, and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So, Dan, you've spoken a little bit about Farewell. You've managed to slip them into the narrative once or twice. What are the takeaway messages that you'd like to emphasise to the listeners, about half of whom are abroad and about half in the UK? There's only one message that I want to land, which is that if you're dealing with anything to do with death, whether it's the planning for it or someone's died and you actually need to take care of it, there are other choices than what you would assume. It's not just solicitors. It's not just high street funeral directors. There are people who do things differently, whether it's us or someone else. And so many people fall victim to just thinking that they have to go down the local high street. It costs a fortune. The service isn't necessarily what you'd want. Look online, assess your options and see where you can go from there. Because it's so possible to do things in a way that are far more relevant for you and your family and can save a ton of money.
Excellent, that's very interesting. And coming back to the point about digital archives and the digital archive of the digital archive and the archive of the digital archive, which is still digital, do you actually send people a piece of paper so that they have something at home rather than I get run over by a bus outside, I did farewell going down the sort of staircase and nobody's actually, well, <laughs> this sounds very gruesome actually, I don't know whether you're allowed to get the, sort of the dead body and stick the dead body thumb on, on the phone to open it up and find out the apps, although in your case you don't have an app, you're online so you probably wouldn't find out unless you trawled through a million Gmails. Uh, we find out if someone's died. Well, no, no, no. If my executors or whatever they're called, yeah. if they're allowed to borrow my thumb and, and open my phone, even then, they wouldn't... I mean, like, they'd find Mons and Revolut, yeah. for example. But how would they find out that I did a fair will? Do you actually send people a piece of paper? You still need a paper will. So the, right. kind of the e-signatures, the, the electronic signatures act doesn't apply to wills. It's specifically excluded. So you need to have a piece of paper wet-signed with two witnesses. So that does help to protect against us disappearing or no one figuring out that they've got an online will. Yes, talking about you know, being careful and the, sort of the, uh, the things you don't want to happen in life, it's always occurred to me, ironically, that I've always had my contents insurance and fire insurance policy in the house. And I did have a chum. Poor chap was 80 when it happened. Whose house burnt down? And, of course, his house insurance was in the house. Yeah. At least, actually, in that case, in the modern world, I do mine online, I think it's legal in general at the moment or something, at least in the modern world, even if everything burnt down, including my phone, I could just go in and log in and Google, if I could remember my Google password, which I probably can't, because every now and then it asks me to change yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I could recreate it that way. But, yes, having a fire insurance policy in the house that you're insuring has always struck me as one of the more stupid things I do. So there we go. Good. OK, well, thanks for that, Dan. It's, I was about to say, it's nice to talk about these things. I don't think it's necessarily nice as such. However, I do think it is important and I do think that it's one of the best things you can do not to give Boris more vanity money and also make your rallies lives easier. So I wish you every success in the future. By the sound of it, an 80 billion market gives you plenty of headroom and scope to expand into the future. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Why?
the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.